Open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 2. The themes of the songs this morning could hardly fit any better with that of the message this morning. Christ in his kingly session, part one, and we will deal then with his outpouring of the Spirit. We are working through the doctrine of salvation. We have seen salvation planned and the eternal decrees of God, determining a people whom he would save, and then a redemption accomplished, sending his Son to accomplish that salvation for sinners in his death and resurrection. And now we are coming to that third big phase of of uh, salvation, and that is salvation applied individually to the hearts and minds of believers. Today we'll look at, we have looked already at the session of Christ, Christ enthroned at the right hand of the Father, and now we're going to pursue that with what is the purpose of his enthronement now in this inaugurated aspect of the kingdom. And we'll look at that in terms of his outpouring of the Spirit. And so we will look again, we have looked before, but we'll look again at Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice. You remember here the context is the day of Pentecost. Um, There has been this marvelous outpouring of the Spirit. The apostles are preaching in various tongues. Those who are there from various lands are hearing this in their own language, hearing the gospel being preached. And uh, some have said, this is just marvelous. How are we to understand this? And others are mocking, saying, well, they must be drunk. I just don't know how to understand such an an unbelievable phenomenon. And we pick up the narrative then in verse 14. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. No one gets drunk that early. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And here he quotes from Joel chapter 2. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
For David says concerning him, and here he quotes Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, you will, make no, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would not that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he would, was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and here's Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your, your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, this is a marvelous theme that we take up this morning we are too often guilty of thinking too little of Christ and not appreciating the greatness that he has achieved as king. Too often we fail to recognize the importance of this day of the outpouring of the spirit of God upon this world. We pray that you'll direct our thinking to that. Give us through it a greater appreciation for the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, we have seen Christ in his death. We've tried to unpack the significance of his death at an extended time. With that, we've looked at the resurrection of Christ and the importance of his resurrection with regards to the salvation of sinners. We looked at his ascension and his glorification, his enthronement at the right hand of God. We've seen that in a number of different passages. You remember it calls to mind... Uh, in a basic way, Second Samuel chapter 7, where God promised to David that he would have a descendant who would reign on the throne forever and forever. And this Davidic hope, this hope of a Davidic king who would come was, was born there in an explicit way. And it's picked up, as we saw in many of the prophets and in the Psalms as well. We saw it in Psalm 2 where the nations are raging against God and revolt against his rule over them. But God says in response, I have set my king on my holy hill, Zion. 
And then we have in Psalm 2, the Messiah himself echoing what God had said to him. The Lord said to me, you are my son. This day I have begotten you. That's enthronement language. This day I've begotten you. I've installed you as king. And then we saw in Psalm 1, oh, in Psalm 2, we also saw that the Messiah said that God said to him, ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. So he has established Christ, the Messiah as king and he has promised him the world. And then we saw in Psalm 110, verse 1, as we read here in Acts chapter 2, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The language of complete subjugation, that Messiah will rule over all the earth. We saw that that's language that's picked up very often in the New Testament, sort of in a dominant way. Psalm 110 is picked up many times in the New Testament. It's dominant in our hymnody as well. We've referred to it this morning in our singing, that Christ seated at the right hand of God, reigning from on high as universal king. We saw it also in Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man rides on the clouds, arrives before the Ancient of Days and receives a kingdom from him to reign universally and all peoples and nations and tongues will bow before him and give him honor. Ultimately, all of that comes to a climax, as we've seen as well, in Revelation chapter 19, in the return of Christ to the earth. And that's the consummation of his kingdom. And he brings it all to its climax there, destroying all of his enemies and every knee now bowing before him in acknowledgement of his kingship, his authority as Lord. And then we saw last time, or the last, actually last time and then a couple of weeks in Sunday school, we uh, explored it a little more fully, that the New Testament writers repeatedly emphasize that Christ is already enthroned. That this enthronement of Christ is not something that's reserved only for the return of Christ. But they emphasize plainly and emphatically that Christ is already enthroned. That's the significance of Jesus' ascension, as we have seen. Peter makes that point here in Acts chapter 2. Jesus alludes to it in Acts chapter 1, that he now has ascended to the throne of the universe at the Father's right hand, as Psalm 110 has said. We saw this graphically portrayed in Revelation chapter 5, where the sovereign has the scroll in his hand, his purposes for salvation and judgment, his kingdom, who's worthy to carry it out. And it is the lamb, the lion of Judah, who appears as a lamb who has been slain and by his sacrifice has purchased to himself a people from every nation, kindred, and tongue. Because of all of that, he is worthy to take the scroll and to carry out God's kingdom and his purposes for salvation and judgment. All of that and all of those passages speak to the same, the enthronement of Christ seated at the Father's right hand as universal King and Lord. And as we saw it as a kind of achieved lordship on Jesus' part, 
as the Son of God, he has always been Lord and ruler over all. But now as the Messianic King, God the Son incarnate, the Davidic Son, now has achieved this Messianic Lordship and has been seated at the right hand of the Father to rule over all of history. And he is the mediator, he's the successful Savior, and he now has authority to save and he has authority to judge. And that, Peter tells us, as we've seen, and as we saw again now this morning in Acts chapter 2, that's the whole point of Pentecost. And these marvelous events that are happening with the descent of the Spirit and the apostles speaking in tongues and proclaiming the gospel to all of the nations in their own language, that's the point. Verses 33 to 36, again, Peter's explanation of it all. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God... Notice there, that's the Psalm 110 passage. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the point of Pentecost, Peter says. Know this. What this means is God has made Jesus, whom you've crucified, Lord and Christ. He has taken his position at the right hand of the Father as King of the universe. And now, as king of the universe, he has poured out his spirit into the world. Asked of the Father, received the spirit as he, as he said he would, and now has poured the spirit out in a powerful way in the world. And so, in a way, the gift of the spirit, which is the mark of this messianic age, the gift of the spirit is the coronation gift of King Jesus to his people. It is customary still today in places where there are uh, or, uh, political situations where there are kings and queens. It is customary often for they, at the ascendance to the throne, the king or the queen will send gifts to all of the children within the kingdom. I've heard some in, uh, from the United Kingdom speak this way, remembering older people now, remembering when Queen Elizabeth took the throne. Gifts were given to all of the children through the kingdom as a coronation gift. And this is what the Spirit is in this scene. Christ has ascended to heaven. He has achieved this universal kingship. And now he gives his coronation gift to the world and sends out his Spirit in a powerful way. That actually helps us understand a passage in John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. I'll read it for you. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now John offers his comment on that interpretively. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. 
the gift of the Spirit hinges on the kingship of Christ pouring out the Spirit for, the, for his purposes, purposes that we'll explore now this morning. Now, our concern here has not just been to look at the ascension and the enthronement of Christ, but in the larger point here, our study is the doctrine of salvation. So what is the saving significance of Jesus' enthronement? In Acts chapter 2, what we're told is that Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit, is the means by which Jesus extends the kingdom of God. The pouring out of the Spirit is the means by which he establishes and extends the kingdom of God. The Old Testament promised that this age of Messiah would be marked by the outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh, that there would be eventually a universal knowledge of the Lord. I love the way it's portrayed in Psalm 2 that we have seen where Messiah, God says, I've set my king on his holy hill. And Messiah echoes God's words to him. You are my, he said to me, you are my son. This day I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. It's a wonderful portrayal that we now we have Christ crucified, risen, ascended to the throne on the basis of the successful redemptive work as mediator, has ascended to the throne and says to the Father, as it were, you promised me the nations. And the father says, that's right, I did. And the father gives him his spirit, and the son then in turn, the messianic king in turn, pours out his spirit in an abundant way on the earth. We find that in Acts chapter 1 as well. Verses 5 and following. You'll receive power. After that, that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, verse 8, you'll be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Wait for the coming of the Spirit. Stay here for it. I'll pour out my Spirit. You will be empowered to take the gospel and extend the kingdom throughout the ends of the earth. And then Acts chapters 3 through 28, all the way to the end, we find them doing just that. Christ, by his Spirit establishing, extending his kingdom throughout the earth. And throughout the narrative of the book of Acts, we read of the people of Christ filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking boldly, proclaiming the gospel, the word of God growing and multiplying, men and women brought under conviction, coming to Christ in salvation and the kingdom of God extending from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. So the first, this is the first saving significance of the enthronement of Christ. As king, the Lord Jesus sends out his spirit to bring in a people for himself from all the nations. Now all of this, and I want to pause to uh, point these out, all of this explains for us several related passages that otherwise perhaps aren't as clear. Let's look back at some of them. Look at Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28. Now keep in mind the setting here. 
This is the crucified, risen Christ. This is post-passion, post-resurrection. And we'll pick it up with verse 18. This is just before Jesus' ascension. He says, Jesus, Matthew says, Jesus came out and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All right, there's our theme. He has an achieved lordship because of his successful mediatorial work. He now has an authority that's been given to him. He's king. He's the messianic king. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. I am with you always to the end of the age. That is, here we have Christ's achieved kingship. That's verse 18. But then verse 20, his ongoing enablement of his people to accomplish the kingdom advance. Go and teach the nations. Go make disciples of all the nations. And I'm with you to empower you to do just that through to the end of the age. And of course, Christ is with them to do that by means of his spirit whom he sends. Look at John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper who will to be with you forever. So here Jesus is saying, this is the eve of his crucifixion. I, will, I am leaving, but I'll ask the Father. He'll send a replacement, another comforter, and he'll be with you forever. And now chapter 16, verses 7 and 8. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away... I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I can only imagine how the disciples must have heard these words. It is to your advantage that I go away. Can you imagine standing there, Jesus' disciples, and he's telling them he's going to be leaving tomorrow? And now he tells them, it's to your advantage that I go? How will that be? And the answer Jesus gives is with regard to the descent of the Spirit. If I leave, then I can pour out my Spirit, and he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the advantage of Jesus' departure is he is enthroned, and now having received the Spirit from the Father, sends him out into the world to convict men and women of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, the New Covenant ministry of the Spirit has many dimensions to it, but this is, is, is emphasized in advance. 
The Spirit comes as the agent of the enthroned Lord Jesus for the advance of his kingdom in the world. The Spirit comes as the agent of the enthroned Lord Jesus for the advance of his kingdom in the world. And this is a major theme throughout the book of Acts. The book of Acts is often described as the record of the first advance of the gospel in the world. And of course it is that. It's a huge theme in the book of Acts. The word of God grew and was multiplied. And we find that kind of language often through the book of Acts accounting for the spread of the gospel. And so the spread of the kingdom of God throughout the world from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Well, that's one way to look at the book of Acts. It is a record of the first spread of the gospel. Look at it in a historical way like that. But from a larger perspective, we might say, I think a little better, that all of this is the work of the Holy Spirit advancing the kingdom of God throughout the earth. Now, that's a massive theme in the book of Acts as well. Throughout, what we read is not simply that the people of Christ went spreading the gospel, but that the Spirit of God empowered them to do just that. And being filled with the Spirit, they spoke with boldness, and men and women came to faith in Christ, and so on. So on one level, the book of Acts is a record of the the historical record of the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem outward. On a larger perspective, it's the work of the Holy Spirit using men and women, the people of Christ, to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. But there's still a larger perspective to have from it all, and that is that it is not just the people of Christ and not just the Holy Spirit who is empowering them to do that, but it is in fact the enthroned Lord Jesus who has poured out his spirit to do just that and to establish and extend his kingdom throughout the world. That's what Peter makes explicit in Acts chapter 2 that we've read. God has made him Lord and Christ. He in turn has poured out his spirit and now we will watch the gospel go from Jerusalem out to the ends of the earth. So if, if the world is the theater of kingdom advance... Well, then these kinds of passages pull back the curtain for us to show us who's directing the entire play. And it is, in fact, the enthroned Lord Jesus, having received the promise of the Father, pours out his spirit into the world for the advance of the kingdom. So, yes, even in the book of Acts, the nations are raging. They refuse his kingship. There's violent rebellion against God, opposition of all kinds. But above it all is the enthroned universal king advancing his kingdom right according to schedule. Carrying out God's purposes and salvation and judgment until finally he returns to bring it all to a glorious consummation. So the enthronement of Christ has this explicit Focus on the gospel advance of the kingdom of God. And that, in one sense, is the whole message of the book of Acts. We're set up for it at the beginning, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, as we have seen. So the world's... If you ever wonder what's going on in the world, what's so messed up, and what is God up to in all of this? This is it world's in an uproar it's in rebellion against God it's no surprise to us we were told that ahead of time 
But for 20 centuries now, King Jesus has been doing just what he said he would do, and that is take the nations to himself, from Jerusalem to the ends of the world. Sometimes he has been doing that through times of great sweeping revival. Sometimes he has done it, very often he has done it through times of intense persecution. But through it all, he has been doing just what he said he would do. He is in the process throughout this age of taking the nations to himself. The book of Acts then gives us the initial chapters of that story. We have the crucified, risen Christ ascends to the throne of the universe, receives the kingdom from the Father, asks the Father for the Spirit. The Father gives the Spirit. The Son in turns, as the Messianic King, pours out the Spirit on the world for the advance of the kingdom among the nations. And then we have Peter, to whom had been given the keys of the kingdom, unlocking the door to the Gentiles. That's Acts 10 and 11, right? And then we have the Apostle Paul, that former Pharisee, bigoted, racist, self-righteous, now giving his entire life for the advance of the gospel among the Gentiles. And we have the infant church, new believers empowered by the Spirit of God to give witness for the gospel. And though they're scattered by persecution, as Luke tells us, Luke chapter 11, or in Acts chapter 11, they're scattered by persecution, and yet they take the gospel wherever they go, and the, God, and the kingdom of God advances through their witness. We have Peter, we have Paul, we have the other apostles we learn of in the early church history, all taking the gospel to the nations around and advancing the kingdom. Until finally, in Acts chapter 17, it's said of, of Paul, these are the guys that turn the world upside down. And if you're like me, every time you read that, you want to say, no, 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 these are the guys who are turning the world right side up, which is precisely what they're doing, bringing in the kingdom of God through their gospel witness. We love the study of church history. I think every... Christian ought to have some interest in church history as well, precisely because it continues to tell this very story. In the initial years of the church, after the ascension of Christ, in those initial years afterwards, they were often marked by intense, severe persecution, like under Nero and Diocletian. And yet by the year 300 A.D., some 10% of the Roman Empire were professing Christians. Seven to eight million people. Sometimes whole villages in the Nile Delta, whole villages along the Aegean coast of Asia Minor, whole villages at times professing faith in Jesus Christ. We had then the Dark Ages, yes, but then we had Reformation, and there's this explosion of the gospel and this massive advance of the gospel, not only in Europe, where the Reformers themselves were, but from there and out from them 
to the world as well. And routinely, Christians have faced persecution, even martyrdom. And that's really one of the strangest things. It may cost them their lives. It may cost them their families. They're determined to follow Christ at every cost. Empowered by the Spirit, taking the gospel to the nations, there's nothing they love more. Not even family, not even life itself. That's what we learned back in Psalm 110, verse 3. Your people will be willing in the day of your power. The Spirit of God comes and the people of Christ are empowered to take the gospel to the nations. Sometimes that advance of the gospel has been in a very protected way. There have been periods and places in church history where Christianity even became the official religion but protected in one way or another. And in those times we've seen in history, the great awakenings, massive advances of the gospel, hundreds of people in a given locale coming to Christ at all at, a, at the same time, thousands, even tens of thousands throughout a region, throughout a nation, like here in America in the great awakenings. We've had missions movements, and we've seen the gospel go out to the nations. We've had evangelistic efforts of all kinds, And Christian men and women, faithful in their own area of influence, faithful in the daily routines of life, taking the gospel to their friends, to their neighbors, to their family, and all the way to our own day when some faithful Christian man or woman brought the gospel to us, and we believed, and in turn we enlisted, and we in turn do the same thing. The gospel story in my own family begins with Uncle Ezra. I never met him. He was, in fact, my grandmother's uncle. I don't know where he heard the gospel. Perhaps he came from a Christian home. I don't know. But he was a, a beloved man in the family, I understand. Grandpa and Grandma, who's my mother, my grandmother's, my, this is my dad's mother, her uncle. Um, they loved him. He stopped by the house one day. This would have been... 1934, something like that, stopped by their house one day and said, hey, we're having revival services at our church this week. I want you to come. And they, Grandpa and Grandma had no interest in such things, but because it was Uncle Ezra, because Uncle Ezra was using his relationship for the sake of the gospel, my grandfather said, sure, I'll go. He went and heard the gospel preached at this church and during the course of the sermon, the preacher had the audacity, this is a Baptist church, and he had the audacity to say, don't think that because you had some water sprinkled on your head as you were a baby, that that makes you a Christian. Well, my grandfather was not only Lutheran, he was German. <laughs> and he was every stereotype of German there is. I won't go into that. But he was. And he heard that. Don't you tell me I'm not a Christian. Well, after the sermon was over, the preacher gave an altar call. There was a guest preacher in the church. And Grandpa went forward. Had no intention at all of 
being saved, but he wanted to argue with that preacher. He met the pastor at the front of the congregation. What would you come for? I came. I want to talk to that preacher. He told me I'm not a Christian if I'm baptized. Yeah, we can have that discussion. <laughs> so the pastor and this guest preacher and my grandfather went off to a Sunday school room to the side, and there Grandpa began railing on him. And he went after him, and he went after him, and they were there till something like midnight. Grandpa arguing with him over and again, and somewhere in the conversation at all of it all, God broke my grandfather and made him see that if all he had to offer to God was some baptism, and he's lost. And God broke him, and there he repented of his sin and came to Christ. If my grandfather was every stereotype German, my grandmother was every stereotype Irish. And many times it was remarked that it was only the grace of God that could have kept the two of them together. Grandpa came home late that evening. It was like midnight or after. And Grandma had come from an old-time Methodist background. She'd known of these revival meetings and camp meetings and such. And so Grandpa walks in the door, and Grandma very affectionately says, What happens? You get converted? (laughs) Grandpa said, Yes, I did. And Sunday you're going to church with me, and you're going to get converted. (laughs) As if you can predict those things. In God's mercy, it's exactly what happened. She came, she heard the gospel, she was, pre- she was wonderfully converted. In turn, now they're bringing up their kids for Christ. My dad and his brothers and sisters, witnessing in the neighborhood, leading people to Christ in the neighborhood, one family in particular, serving for decades as missionaries in another country. Grandma's a Sunday school teacher, Grandpa's a deacon. Their children brought to Christ, eventually their grandchildren. Some years later, my dad was pastoring in Bartonville, Illinois, suburb of Peoria. He's pastoring there, and I heard the gospel all my life. But then that Sunday morning, I heard the gospel, preached. The Spirit of God came and opened my eyes, made me see my need for Christ. And on it goes. That's the story of the world, isn't it? We have that in the context of RBC. We have Paul and Gloria Gillespie back there. God brings them to Christ. They lead and bring up their children for Christ. And just a few weeks ago, we see two more of their grandchildren giving testimony of faith. We could say the same as many others here in the congregation. All of that, all of that, is the work of King Jesus on the throne of the universe. He has sent his spirit out to bring the nations to himself. And when this gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed to all the nations, then the end will come. That's the program. Romans chapters 9 through 11 give us the big picture of it all. The gospel was, as it were, damned up in Israel. There it was, held back in Israel. Messiah came, Israel wouldn't have him. Israel in disbelief, 
God sets aside Israel for a time. And the water of the gospel, as it were, spills over the dam and gushes to the nations. And it will continue to do so until the fullness of the Gentiles is complete. And then all Israel will be saved. We find it graphically portrayed in the book of Revelation. The church, with all of its struggles, both inside and out, suffering often under the rage of the beast and the imagery of the book of Revelation, faithfully persevering, taking the witness of the gospel everywhere. And they don't love their lives even unto death, but they overcome by the word of their testimony. And we have this wonderful picture in the book of Revelation of the people of Christ persevering, looking eagerly to the day of Christ's return, waiting faithfully and persevering fearlessly until he comes. The early church, and we find this in the book of Acts, was marked by a perseverance and a fearlessness that was undergirded by a firm conviction. And number one, Christ is enthroned on the, as king of the universe. And two, he has poured out his spirit to secure his kingdom. And his kingdom cannot fail. He rules over earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given. And through 20 centuries, the enthroned Lord Jesus has been advancing his kingdom by his powerful, irresistible spirit, rescuing one helpless sinner after another out of the tyranny of Satan and bringing them into the kingdom of God until finally that program will be complete and he'll return and he'll bring it all to a glorious consummation. Well, I think you can see how all of this forms the backdrop of our next section of studies. Redemption planned, redemption accomplished, redemption applied. The Spirit of God has come to apply the work of Christ and his saving merits to men and women individually throughout the nations. And in terms of those really puzzling words in John chapter 16, it is to your advantage that I go away. We can see that it was indeed to our advantage that he went away because he ascended to the throne, assumed his position of authority, poured out his spirit on the world. And by that, the gospel has come to us and he has opened our eyes to it. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father.